0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of AUHSD Future Talks. I'm your host, Michael Matsuda, the superintendent of the Anaheim Union High School District. And we've been so lucky to have many, many uh, amazing guests from teachers to students to CEOs and college presidents and today we have uh, someone who has something to say about life and the world and certainly about education, Professor Noam Chansky. Thank you so much, Professor, for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you, especially
1: and, as I've learned about the wonderful work that you're doing.
0: Thank you so much, sir. So I just wanted for our, our folks uh, that uh, m- may not know the stature of, of who you are, just a real brief uh, bio, I know this can go on for pages, but uh, Professor Chomsky since the 1960s has been a world renowned scholar for being pioneering linguist, social critic and political activist. He has written over 150 books and articles, some of which are Manufacturing Consent, recreating for the American Dream, Masters of Mankind, uh, Global Discontent and Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal that touch upon critical issues that have wide implications, especially for the world that our young people are about to um, address in their lives, uh, including three really uh, worldwide threats for humanity, climate disruption, uh, degradation of democracy, and nuclear proliferation. These are three big topics important to all of us, including Professor Chomsky. So I'd like to start off with the lead question here, Professor, is, you know, you've, uh, in your 94 years of looking at uh, a lot of institutions, including public institutions like education, what do you think the future of education looks like for young people?
1: Well, I've been looking at education since I was about... 18 months old, sent to nursery school. My parents were Hebrew teachers. That meant that they were working most of the day, Didn't, nobody, so they sent me off to an, fortunately for me, too, an experimental uh, Deweyite school run by Temple University Education Department, which was a very fine, progressive education department and the school that they ran was rather similar to what you've been describing in your work. And I was there from sort of infancy up until high school, very valuable experience. Uh, Since then, I've been mostly in the educational uh, institutions here and there all my life, including now higher education around the world. Uh, the past 30 or 40 years in the the United States in the late nineteenth century uh, made a great contribution to democracy by introducing mass public education. There was nothing like that anywhere in the world. It was a major contribution both at the the uh, school level and at the college level, with the land-grant universities. In fact, uh, most of my life I've been at MIT, which in fact a land-grant university, which was established in the 19th century by federal authorities. The idea was to create an
0: educated
1: population. That's an enormous contribution to modern democracy. And it's painful and ironic to see that in the last 40 years or so, there have been intensive efforts to destroy this system, literally to destroy it. It's not secret. The uh, Secretary of Education under the Trump administration, Betty DeVos, was quite open in saying that she was opposed to public education, thought the system shouldn't exist. Uh, the uh, intellectual uh, uh, guru of the Reagan administration, Milton Friedman, uh, believed there shouldn't be any for public education. In fact, in the 1970s, he worked quite openly, no secret, with uh, segregationists in the South and their efforts to try to uh, get around the civil rights laws by setting up uh, private, religious-oriented schools, and Friedman wasn't in favor of that. But since it was a way of undermining public education, he supported it. What's happened in the past forty years is, first of all, at the, at the
0: uh,
1: the major thing, the destructive thing, has simply been defunding.
0: So, so arguably, sir, the you uh, the the Democrats as well have been sort of complicit in terms of this uh, what you and people like uh, Paulo Freire uh, frame as the uh, the banking form of education, in which, uh, in fact, I'm going to ask you to explain <laughs> that, but. Certainly, this is not just one party, right, in terms of the erosion, being involved with and complicit with the erosion of public education. Well, there is, a,
1: back in the 19th, 18th, 19th century during the Enlightenment, there was extensive discussion of education and what it should be. And there were basically two models. One model was The banking model, they didn't call it then. The model they used was education as being like a vessel into which you pour water, and then some of the water comes out in an examination. This was ridiculed. It was posed as something to be ridiculed. The worst possible form of education is pouring material in, letting some of it come out, uh, every one of us has had an experience where we were compelled to take a course which you weren't interested in, uh, learned what you had to learn, memorized enough stuff to pass the exam, uh, two weeks later forgot what the course was about. That's the banking model. The Obama model that Obama, uh, since you raised a question about Democrats, the one that he and his education, Duncan, uh, pursued. Basically, the model that was ridiculed in the 18th century as the worst possible form of education. Uh, sometimes now it's called training for test. I've actually had experiences when I've talked about these things to teachers' organizations, and a teacher will come up to me later and tell me I'm a sixth grade teacher a child in my class was interested in something that came up during the class and wanted to know if I could suggest some further readings for her. I had to tell her, sorry, you can't do it. You have to study for the exam because your future will depend on it. And though the teacher didn't say so, my future will depend on it. Yeah. Like if you do interesting things that lead you in some direction in which you learn something, my cellar will go down. That's what I'm supposed to do is pour water into your mind and then you let some of it come out in the test and then forget all about it and go do something else. You had you know, possible more you form of
0: You mentioned you uh, grew up in a John Dewey-inspired mm-hmm. school. Now, wasn't he a big proponent of developing uh, authentic voice, and uh, and kind of the opposite of uh, this uh, empty vessel.
1: He was, Dewey thought that schools should be uh, uh, an opportunity to encourage, somewhat direct, but basically encourage the natural uh, inquisitive intuitive concern of children to learn and understand. Children are born very inquisitive. They want to understand everything. Every parent knows that a child can start driving you crazy with too many questions. They want to understand. If you give them an opportunity to explore, to inquire, to create, they'll pursue it their natural tendency. They want to understand the world. Educational systems can support that. It doesn't mean just letting anything go randomly. There's a framework. But within the framework, you can try to encourage the urge that every young child has, an older person, to try to understand more about the world. That never stops, incidentally.
0: Another. Is, is there a connection between this and your work as a linguist and your seminal work, um, and which I don't, you know, it's difficult for me to for me to grasp? But um, is there a connection there between what you found and what you shared with the world in terms of, your, of your academic uh, linguistic world?
1: There is a kind of connection if you look back. Uh, uh, the core of our linguistic capacities, is a pretty remarkable fact. a fact that, uh, again, going back to the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, a fact that utterly amazed and astonished the leading figures who created modern science, and people like Galileo, for example, were amazed and awed by the fact that human beings, unique in the universe, in the world, probably the universe, uh, unique, uh, have the ability, to, with a finite number of symbols, to create infinitely many thoughts, new thoughts that have never been expressed before, and even have the ability to Using these symbols to convey to others access to their minds to which they have no direct connection, so I can, you can penetrate my mind, which you have no access by my ability to just express thoughts to you. Galileo regarded this as one of the most amazing facts in the universe, and. Uh, In fact, he regarded the alphabet as the most spectacular invention in human history because it was able to convey this remarkable capacity. Well, that's the core of human nature, and it relates to education.
0: It relates
1: loosely to the search, that, unless it's extinguished, the search that we all the urge that we all have to explore, to inquire, to understand novel things and to create novel things. Everyone has that at some level. Maybe build something new, whatever it may be. Well, those are the capacities that an educational system should nurture and uh, support. things that come from the inside, and that you can then develop just as language develops from the inside.
0: So there needs to be some intention about how to develop that in terms of addressing some of these existential challenges that you often talk about in your more recent books and your talks, especially climate disruption. What um, is the current state of that? How urgent is that? And what do you think young people and teachers need to do to address it?
1: This is the most serious challenge that has ever arisen in human history. It's this generation, like it or not, is going to face the, the decision whether to permit Human, organized human life to continue on Earth or whether to essentially terminate it. Not in one day, but we're soon going to be passing irreversible tipping points, after which there will simply be decline, irreversible decline into an unlivable uh, uh, world. It can be stopped. We know how to stop it. The answers are there. But what's needed is the will to implement them, and there's not much time. And unfortunately, the actions are not being taken. When uh, Greta Thunberg, young woman, stood up at the Davos conference and spoke to the leaders of the world, the economic, political leaders of the world, and said simply, you have betrayed us. She was quite right. My generation betrayed them. We left them with, we left young people with very hard challenges. Didn't have to be done. Uh, 20 years ago, the Kyoto Protocols were the first effort by the international community to address these severe challenges. Two countries refused to join, Andorra and the United States. That setback, 20 years of setback efforts to do something about it makes the crisis much harder to deal with today than it would have been 20 years ago. That is a major crime. It's being continued right now. There are... Every day that we let go by without moving to address this makes it harder to deal with it. So this crisis is just overwhelming. And it's important to recognize that the answers are there. The answers are there within perfectly feasible methods that can be undertaken to mitigate the crisis, to uh, gain time. To carry out more fundamental social and economic changes, which lead, can lead to a much better world.
0: So but this is why education is so important, right? Because especially for young people, and um, they need to be um, to understand and comprehend some of these challenges. And you're a person that was active in other existential challenges, World War II, the Depression, certainly the Cold War, Vietnam War. Um, And you've seen generations of young people deal with these issues. What do you, uh, how do we move away from cynicism because what you describe could be very dystopian and very depressing for young people. And In fact, we see a lot of uh, a rise of teenage depression in the world. What is your uh, sort of way forward?
1: The way forward is to pursue the way they made the improvements in the past. I don't think it's depressing to look at these. I think it's invigorating. If we look at them, we see how much has been achieved. I mean, I'm 94 years old. I have a lot of memories. But the world is a lot better than it was in the past. You don't have to go back 90 years. Go back, say, 50 years. Important time. The beginning of the activist youth movements. What was the United States like in the 1960s? Well, think about it. The United States had anti-miscegenation laws that were so extreme that the Nazis refused to accept them, because they were just too extreme for the Nazis. Uh, the United States had, of course, anti-sodomy laws. Uh, the, uh, there was federal housing, but it was segregated by law, meaning just for whites, which means that. The black population lost out on the post-war opportunity to gain what's the basis for wealth in the United States home ownership. Uh, Women were not regarded as peers. They did not have the guaranteed right, for example, to serve on federal juries because they weren't real people. That was the 1960s. Well, we've come a long way since then. Things that were taken for granted. In the 1960s are just unimaginable today. Why? Because young people were out organizing, agitating, educating, compelling, uh, demonstrating, working to make sure that these uh, shameful features of the society would be overcome. Well, can still do it there. If you look at the past, I don't think it's depressing. It's been hard. It was never easy. A lot of people suffered. The people who were in the forefront, a lot of them suffered badly. But the changes are real. You look through all through history, that's the way it's been. Abolition, women's rights, uh, almost eliminating uh, the kinds of obscene, uh, unthinkable punishments that were normal. Not too far in the past. It's still plenty to overcome. But the difference is the, the progress has been substantial. And it was never a gift from above. It always came by popular struggle. And a very commonly, young people were in the forefront.
0: You know, um really want to thank you for taking the time to look at what some of the things that we're doing in the Anaheim Union High School District uh, about this experiment called democracy. And uh, can you uh, just say a comment or two about the importance of teaching and modeling democracy in schools in America? Well...
1: We have to ask ourselves, do we want to live in a democratic society or do we want to live as obedient servants to some higher power? If we choose the former, as of course we do in words, but if we choose it in reality, that will be a core part of the democratic system. Going back to John Dewey, democracy and education were linked in his thought as his main concerns, democracy and education. Schools were to be uh, prepare people for constructive participation in a democratic society in which they would be in a position to shape the decisions that would determine the nature of the society and the world. That's what schools are can begin with, can begin in elementary school, kindergarten, in fact. I've seen science programs for kindergartens, which stimulate, um, let me outline one, Um, uh, just an example. Take kindergarten children in a class, and the teacher gives each child a shell. In the shell are a number of objects a bead, uh, um, a toy, um, a seed, uh, something else, and then sets a challenge: figure out which of these objects can turn into a tree. That's the challenge. Then each child is given opportunities to come. They have a scientific session where they talk about how to experiment to do it, try various things teacher intervenes now and then, direct it, they carry out the experiments, finally they all figure out that it's the seed that's going to create the tree. At that point, each child gets a microscope, the teacher splits the seed, opens it up, and the children see what it is inside the seed that is going to create the tree. It's education. Go to a higher level, I'll give you another case. I happen to live in Tucson, Arizona. There's a very poor neighborhood, mostly immigrant neighborhood, where 20 years ago, the schools were places where the main task of the teacher was to keep the kids from killing each other, just try to keep quiet in the classroom. The idea that anybody could go to college, even high school, was not even considered. Well, they started an experimental program where they put in a small garden and the children started taking care of the garden. Then they brought in a fish pond. The children started taking care of the fish. Then they started using the excrement from the fish to seed the garden, and they started studying basically chemistry, physiology. They expanded. When I visited, I was taken through by 10-year-old kids who were explaining to me the chemistry and physiology of the growth and development. The schools now send kids to college, there's no discipline problems. They're working out from their own interests and concerns, learning about how the world works. Furthermore, the communities have been uh, invigorated. These are uh, a lot of the people in the community are one generation away from rural life. The parents can begin to participate and help with their own suggestions. The kids uh, distribute the fruit and vegetables that they grow in the community. They get together. Now there's an active, lively community as well, supportive of the schools.
0: Everything has changed. These things can be done. So we're we're actually doing that. We've created a urban farm to help solve food deserts. And uh, so students are really studying the what a food desert is through census data and data. But there is a connection. I think what you're getting to is problem solving, local problem solving can lead to enhanced civic engagement and actually create more Voice leading to uh, this thing called democracy, where students are beginning to connect the dots as to why is there so much junk food in poor neighborhoods? It does. Why, why is there so much dialysis in poor neighborhoods? You know, and who's responsible for what? I think you'd be very impressed because our students are beginning to ask those questions and beginning to connect the dots based on their own. Passions and interests. We're not imposing this on them. They're looking and exploring. And going back to our first opening dialogue, Professor, is that the importance of students having that stance of inquiry about the world around them?
1: I think what the schools should be doing, exactly as you described, is to be fostering the curiosity that every child already has fostering it, encouraging it, setting up conditions under which it can expand, like that kindergarten experiment that I mentioned, or the garden, or what you're doing with food. It sets up conditions in which a child's natural curiosity can explore, inquire, learn not just about food, but about chemistry and physiology, about biology, about the basic Principles of how the world works, but how our world works for ourselves, and why are why are people driven to fast food and harming themselves instead of having healthy food? As soon as you raise that questions, you're asking questions about the nature of the society. Should we have a monopolized agriculture, which is destroying the soil? Uh, and uh, destroying the prospects for future generations? Should we have industrial meat production, uh, which is, apart from what it's doing to the animals, is creating antibiotic-resistant drugs, which could very well be killing us all? Well, all of these questions arise as soon as you begin to look into anything, as soon as you begin to look at the plate that's in front of you when you eat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. For the students to come up with their own questions of inquiry, asking who benefits and who uh, how, who's responsible for what, those sort of things are the uh, cornerstones of a healthy democracy. You know, in the few moments that we have left, I mean, we at Anaheim have been trying to frame the North Star for education around what uh, Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez uh so eloquently fought for, and it's really about meaningful opportunities for jobs. Uh, and the word is underscored: meaningful and purposeful, meaning, meaningful to the, the 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 child and to the adults. What what is your uh, response to that? Um, and that we moved in Anaheim, we moved away from just uh, teaching to a standardized test to. Having students find purpose and meaning. Having teaching
1: to a standardized test is the idea that was properly ridiculed in the 18th century. That's pouring water into a vessel. Moving away from that is the beginning of education. That's an impediment to education. You get rid of that and, in fact, turn to helping students find their way towards a meaningful life right in the classroom by doing things from which they become, come to understand and to, to develop their own creative instincts, and to learn what it's like to participate in a democratic society because they're working together one of the best activity, the kinds of activities I mentioned, are all cooperative. We all work together with mutual aid to try to improve things, even moving out into the community and trying to change government policies which are harming our community and education. That expands into becoming a citizen of a functioning democracy and uh, also to creating frontiers of knowledge and creativity which will create a much better world. Limitless this can start with the, the germ of it is education in a classroom where all of these talents which are all there are fostered, nurtured, given ways to develop, supported, not killed the way they're killed by a, a education to test uh, the system which simply kills all initiative and interest
0: you know the, the final question I have for you professor is for you to speak directly to our young people um, what message do you have for them and especially um, their futures and this very volatile and certain world that they that we're educating them for Well, we can
1: go back to what we were saying before. Young people today face a challenge that has never arisen in the entire history of the human species. Will we move on to create a better world as we can, or will we decide that the game is over, that human life has come to essentially an end, we are going to extinguish ourselves, and the innumerable other species that we are destroying in our foolishness. That's the question posed to every young person today. Wasn't true in the past. It's true now, because of past folly and betrayal, like the betrayal at the Kyoto the protocols. But I could mention many others. Now you're faced with that. It's, it's a difficult challenge, but also an exciting one. It's a challenge that often gives you the chances to create something that's never been done before, to save humanity from self-destruction and to move on to a much better, more just, more free, more livable world. It's a very exciting prospect.
0: That is, sir. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Professor. I know in your 94 years, you have dedicated your life to what you just said, to create a better world for all humanity and all living things. And uh, um, you have so many, many followers out there that you've influenced. And we are very grateful for the work that you've done and wish you well, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much.